This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, in honor of September being the National Alcohol and Drug Addiction Recovery Month, I speak with two individuals who have been personally touched by addiction. First, I talk with Sarah, who has dealt with alcoholism in her family and within herself. She is now in recovery, where she began her journey by replacing alcohol with positive activities. Then, after the break, I chat with Jessica, who has seen the opioid epidemic ruin the lives of many friends. She has dealt with the repercussions of the outbreak and has finally decided to do something about it in the form of a feature-length movie. The stories of these two women are heart-wrenching, but in the end, a place of recovery and hope was achieved. Here are their stories. My name is Sarah Baxley. My friends call me Bax. I am in Daytona Beach Shores, Florida. First off, I want to thank you, Michael, for the opportunity to come on your show and and talk a little bit about my story and um, sobriety. Um, as a young girl, uh, I grew up and my my father was an alcoholic, and and he actually got sober when I was about three years old. Um, currently he's got 27 years or no, excuse me, forgive me. Let me, let me back up. He's got, he's going on 37 years of sobriety right now. Um, and my mom was actually one of those, we call them the normal people that can actually have a drink and, and not have any more. Um, it was, it's kind of funny because she would bring home like a six pack and have a, a beer out of the, you know just one and then she would leave the rest in the refrigerator and you're like you can't do that you're breaking up a family of six there you know you just can't (laughs) (laughs) so so i kind of had like both spectrums of my dad was the alcoholic but he was in recovery um and then my mom was just a social drinker so i figured hey i'm the normal one i can do what i want you know which i found out that i couldn't um i actually had my first drink at 15 i was a new year's party with my cousins and you know, it was like the cool thing. And it was when I had that first sip of alcohol, it tasted like more and I needed more right now because all of a sudden I became funny and people wanted to talk to me more and I was more outgoing and I was always kind of a a quiet. I was very into sports and and kind of did my own thing. 
but I was, I was still kind of like a, I always kind of consider myself a loner, but when I drank, it was like I had finally arrived and I had found myself and early, early teens, you know, we would, you know, drink Boone's farm, you know, (laughs) as high school kids. And, you know, as soon as you hit 21, it was almost like I was off to the races and progressively I I found myself not wanting to stop when I was drinking. Um, It was like, I couldn't drink enough. I couldn't, I could, I could never to this day, honestly, I could never tell you what does drunk feel like because I don't really know because I was a blackout drinker. Um, I always tra- chase that high. And for a long time, you know, it was a good time. You go out with your friends and you have drinks and you get drunk and, and all of that stuff. But it eventually it started to turn on me. It started to turn on me where I was drinking to numb my feelings or I didn't want to I didn't want to feel anything. I, I, I drank, you know, but then I, I drank when I was happy. So there was always an occasion for me to drink, but I also became a closet drinker. So I wouldn't go out and drink anymore. I would drink in my house and I would hide it in my bathroom. And my daughter always wondered why I was going to the bathroom a lot, but you know, I just, you make up excuses because you, you become the queen or king of justification. So that brought me to um, the end of June. Um, actually, let me back up a little bit. Um, before I, I took my last drink, I actually had been training to do my first Tough Mudder. And tough, what Tough Mudder is, is it's, 10 to 12 miles. It's 26 military style obstacles and they have outrageous obstacles called like electroshock therapy where you run through 10,000 volts of electricity or they have things called like the Arctic enema. It's like a big ice bath or, you know, they have crybaby, which is tear gas. So it's, it's very, it's, it's basically the British ops came in and created Tough Mudder for America and and everyone overseas to do because it's it's everywhere uh, around the world. But I had been training for that, and my first tough mutter was in the beginning of June, and I did my first tough mutter on an hour of sleep and hungover from vodka because that was my my poison back then. Um, I made it through. I did end up in the in the ER because I twisted my ankle in electroshock therapy, but whatever. But the the things that you push yourself to do, um, even when you're drinking, um, and because I thought that it would help me function better, which is total totally blows my mind at this point in my life. But shortly after that, later that month, well, June twenty eighth, two thousand fourteen, is my sobriety date, and um, I was. I was I was planning my drinking around having to take my daughter to school because she didn't have her driver's license at that time. And I was unemployed at the time. And you know, you when you're drinking and this is the part that turns on you is it's like you you feel as though everything's fine and then all of a sudden you start 
you get inside your head and, and thoughts of, okay, I'm 38 years old and I'm worthless and I'm a you know single mother and I'm unemployed and, you know, wherever I lived and, and, and you just, everything starts kind of closing in on you or closing in on me for that matter at that point. And I drank to get rid of that feeling. But the more I drank, the more those feelings surfaced in the, in the end, which I had been drinking for, I'd went on like a three day binge on vodka. And, um, one night I was on the couch and it all caught up to me. And my daughter saved my life. Um, she was the one who called, she found me on the couch and I was unresponsive. And I can barely, barely faintly remember her screaming at me. And it haunts me to this day. No, mom, please, no. I woke up in the hospital and I see you with a 0.372 blood alcohol level. I was legally drunk for a couple of days. And my dad, my dad, he was never one to press AA on me, um, but I knew that he was very active in it. And I was in ICU and my, my dad called me. And of course I bursted into tears and he's like, okay, Sarah, would you do this time? And I told him, and he's like, you really need to talk to someone. And of course, you know, that part of me is, eh, I got this, I got this. I don't, I don't need anyone, you know, cause denial is, <laughs> yeah. Um, so he actually, what he did was he called um, the AA community and had two ladies come visit me in the hospital. And I was unaware that, you know, people would do that because I really didn't care at that point. So these two ladies show up to my hospital room and they're smiling and they're laughing and, and I'm miserable at this point. All I can think about is, you know, somebody give me a shot of something or, or whatever. Cause I was absolutely miserable at that point. I mean, the only thing that they would really give me is IV fluids and, you know, and they're laughing and, and joking and coming in and, and, and I'm just kind of looking at them like they're a foreign object and they introduced themselves and we started talking, you know, they were just like, what'd you do? Like they were my best friend. I told them what happened. You know, I told them all the years I've drank and, and some of my, we call them drunk dialogues, you know, <laughs> drunk stories and, and stuff like that. And I found myself laughing about it and they were laughing about it. And then they were sharing, you know, some of their stories. And I was like, wow. And for that moment, I felt, I felt like I was at home with these, with these two women and they invited me to a meeting and I, I, there was a part of me, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be a part of that. I, all I wanted to do was feel better at that point. And, and going to an AA meeting didn't sound like a good time to me. <laughs> But I agreed. My father called me back and, you know, he asked how the meeting went and I told him. And so I told him I was going to go to my first meeting. So I went to my first meeting. I got discharged from the hospital and 
you know, they even offered to come pick me up, which like blew my mind. So I, I pull up to this place. Um, and that was in, that was in Crossville, Tennessee. I got sober there. I pull up to this place and I get out of my car and all of a sudden, hi, how you doing? What's your name? You know, welcome, welcome. And it was, I was, I was like in shock, you know, cause you typically, you know, you walk into stores or, or whatever. And, and if you don't know people, they're not going to just, you know, come out and say hello, but everyone, it was like they embraced me and everything that I was. And even though I was hesitant about being there or, or being a part of whatever w was happening, because I mean, I was, I was kind of knowledged on it, but I wasn't, you know, cause so, so they invited me in and, you know, got me some coffee. And the beautiful thing about my first meeting was they have candlelight meetings on Saturday nights in, at this place in, in Tennessee. And so they turn off the lights and they put little tea lights in front of everyone that's sitting around the table. And we all went around and we spoke and of course, I was terrified. I, I didn't really want to talk. But after after talking to the two women who had who'd come in and, and meeting some of the other people and listening to other people and their other stories, for once in my life, I didn't feel like a weirdo. I didn't feel alone anymore. And and that's a big sign that was hanging up on the on the wall. You know, you're not alone anymore. And for once, I felt as though someone understood me and what I was going through. So honestly, I didn't talk that night, really. But the tea light was so symbolic to me because all around me was darkness. And there was this little tea light in front of me. And that was just, it represented so much hope to me. Just that little candle. and. I, I say this all the time, but I wish that anybody that is looking to go into the program could experience that for their first meeting because it's really a beautiful experience because it's almost like coming out of the darkness, but you still kind of want to hide in it because you feel ashamed. But everyone there, I mean, they embraced me. And by the next week, I was at the Nashville Roundup which um, was an AA convention. That was an amazing experience. Uh, I've never, uh, I didn't know things like that happened. I didn't know that like a, a big convention full of sober people could be a good time, you know? <laughs> so I, I just kind of, you know, tagged along and, and, and went along for the ride and, and, and listened and to listen and there were celebrities there sharing their stories and it was it was like an awakening experience after after that i mean i i really started diving more into like bodybuilding and stuff like that um i was actually working in physical therapy um right after Right after I got, three months after I got sober, I got a job in physical therapy. And what's really funny is that there, my, the, the, the owner, you know, he, I don't have a perfect past um, and I don't pretend that I do, but 
you know, I was honest with him about my sobriety. And that's what actually got me the job was my honesty. And for once, it felt good to tell the truth because when I was drinking, it was all a game and I had to hide everything. Um, I did my 90 days and or 90 meetings in 90 days. And um, my first year came around and my dad took me to the Atlantic Convention, which was the, the national convention where you, you get people from Japan and all of the countries and all of the states that participate in the program were there. And we all had badges on. So you're walking around Atlanta and you see like somebody from Japan, they just come up to you and give you a hug. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't know you could have a good time without drinking. I mean, I went camping without drinking. I sang karaoke without drinking. And I didn't think those things were possible because those were all the things before that allowed me to become a bigger person. But the program taught me how to become that bigger person. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, I, do I go to meetings all the time? No, I don't go to meetings all the time. But I do encourage people to at least do the 90 meetings in 90 days because it at least it allows you to to grab a hold of the tools and and learn some valuable lessons. I think that that in and my dad tells me this all the time because he'll say, Sarah, have you gone to a meeting? And he's like, I know you might not need it, but somebody else might. Which brings me to another story. Um, when I was working in physical therapy, uh, the name had the word rehabilitation in it. So I was at work and I got a call and the guy was crying on the other, on the other side of the phone. And I asked him if I could help him. And he said he needed a bed. And it just, it occurred to me what he was calling for just by that statement alone. And I said, are you looking for a facility to check into for rehabilitation? And he said, yes. It has always been difficult for me to hear a man cry. I could hear the desperation in his voice. And he goes, oh, I, you know, because I told him, I said, well, this is a physical therapy, you know, place. But give me a second. I want to talk to you. And he goes, you want to talk to me? And I was like. Just, just please, if you will, hold on. So he held on, and I went outside um, in the back of the building, and I asked him his name, and um, I told him that I was there, and you know, I had gone, I had started the program, and I, I'd stopped drinking, and you know, it, it broke my heart, and it took me back to where I was, and the pain, and the suffering, and the emotional torment that I was going through, he was going through, but it was such a blessing to be on the other side and to be able to just convey, a, a, you know, a, a voice to tell him that, you know, there is, there is help out there. We actually tried to get him to come to meetings. I called some of the gentlemen um, that you know, went to the meetings to possibly pick him up. Um, unfortunately, you know, there was always an excuse, which, you know, you have to be ready. You can't force anybody to do it. But what I looked at that is, is I planted a seed and, and I 
hopefully that seed will grow and he will find the light to to change his life and turn it around um and i i pray i pray god he's he's doing okay today because i mean the anonymity part you know you you kind of you don't really push the subject on onto people or you just kind of let them feel it out and grab onto it when they're ready at the atlantic convention they they my dad well my dad took me there and he gave me my year coin in the middle of the convention after the flag ceremony after they went through all of the the countries and what they do is they do a sobriety countdown so we're in a stadium full of people in recovery and so they start like at you know 50 years or you know wherever they start up high and then they go all the way down and they get to a, they got to a year and i stood up and probably seven other people stood up in this huge stadium just full of people and people just start screaming it was like you were a rock star for a second and the the, the chills that like just shot up me was just the gratitude and the excitement and the and being grateful and and having people grateful for me you know and and my achievements was it was kind of it was a life-changing experience just to be surrounded by pure joy um you know there's people running around saying you know had signs that like said free hugs and and you know it was it, it was great it was it was very cool i was going to ask you for those who don't know Tell us a little bit about what the 12-step program is, what Alcoholics Anonymous is. Okay, well, Alcoholics Anonymous is a 12-step program. Um, the only requirement is the desire to not drink anymore. Uh, there's, uh, We've had people come into meetings and they've drank, but they have a desire not to. And we don't turn them away. There's no, the only requirement is to have the desire to stop drinking. Um, the 12 steps, usually, you know, when you first get into the program, you get a sponsor. You get someone who, who has some significant sobriety under their belt, who knows what they're doing, who's worked the steps, who have had, you know, sponsees. And you go over those steps, and it's almost like a purification of life. Um, you can always look up the 12 steps of AA online, but I mean, the things that you do, it, they're very soul searching. And if you can, if you can forgive yourself, you can be free. And that's what I found. But that's what that program allows you to do it allows you to make amends with people um and even if they don't accept it you made your amends and now you can move on um you know the tools the the promises the you know we are not saints but we you know we we're striving for a better path you know we there's none of us are saints we we all have our quirks and and but we all share something that's in common but but it's not just with aa and that's that's the beauty of the program the program is a beautiful thing to follow but it applies to gambling or 
or anything else that someone might be addicted to. It's like I said, it, the, the thing, the only thing that I can think of is it's like a purification of yourself and, and forgiving your past and learning to laugh again and learning to love yourself. I had to allow others to love me for a long time before I could look at myself in the mirror and be like, okay, you know what? I'm okay with me today. It took me a long time for that. And that's why, you know, I encourage the 90 day or 90 meetings in 90 days um, because you need that. Because it, it, for me, it was impacting my family, my daughter, my mother. And I, I didn't like me. I didn't like me for a long time. And that's another reason why I did drink. I just felt like, you know, I didn't, I, I just didn't serve the world. But it wasn't the world I needed to serve. It was me. So the 12 steps, it's, it's, it's an amazing journey. It really is. So standing in a stadium full of thousands of people, and there's like seven of you that stand up with a year coin. And my, what, what was so beautiful is my, my dad was there to hand it to me. It is the only way I can describe it. It's like if you were a rock star and you got on stage for the first time after hitting platinum and the crowd goes wild, that's what it's like. And you don't know whether to laugh. I didn't know whether to cry. I had goosebumps. I was just, I, it was, it was just one of those experiences and those feelings you don't ever forget. And, and you, when you feel something like that, you want others that have been suffering or that just need a, a help or a helping hand to feel that too. Because once you feel that complete and utter bliss and joy, nothing nothing's better than that that's like the ultimate high i was getting high on life for once which was unbeknownst to me i didn't know that was possible so that's that's the only way i can explain that it was pretty cool it sounds amazing what did, you said you got into bodybuilding was that something that you had done before and you just got more into it or was that something you just started out of the blue now, I was in sports all my life. I played soccer, tennis, basketball, softball. Um, I had kids, kind of got out of all of that stuff. And it was, it was actually back in 2012. It, I, was, I was living in Tennessee, and it was a New Year's resolution. Not that I had gotten, like, significantly overweight, but I could have lost a few pounds. But it was a it was a New Year's resolution. So me and my best friend Audrey at the time, we started walking the track at uh, the college, and then the weather hit and it got you know we got snowed out. And I'm like, okay, maybe we should get a gym membership at this point. So we started going to the gym and we started seeing results. Um, I wasn't really into the whole bodybuilding thing at that point. I was just more into the cardio and a little bit of weights, but not really you know going beast mode or anything yet but then i had moved back to crossville because my mom had some medical issues 
And the gym that I had gone to there, which was the brick house gym, I had met a couple people that were bodybuilders and they kind of took me under their wing and showed me how to bodybuild. And as soon as I started really seeing like results and definition, I was hooked. It was my new addiction. I did, well, I did um, the Tough Mudder pre-sobriety, and then I did another Tough Mudder. I did a, my second Tough Mudder, and I was invited to go to the Stone Cold Steve Austin's Broken Skull Challenge on season three. So I, I trained for those. I did those. And then I, I started wanting to really kind of focus on, because the extreme sports has a lot of, I, 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 for lack of better terms, it's more CrossFit stuff. You got more cardio. But I also like to be functional because I'm not a small person. I'm 6'1". So my objective is to be able to, I like the aesthetics, but I also like functionality. I like to be able to like throw my own body weight around and do pull-ups and, and such. So I, I started training and then I moved down to, um, I got a, a job being a manager at a gym and which brought me to Florida. Um, and what was funny, the first week that I, we opened the gym, I had this little lady come in. You could clearly tell that she was a professional bodybuilder. And I have like this huge bucket list. And that was actually one of the things on my bucket list. And we started talking and we started becoming friends. And I was like, what would it take for me to be in a show? And she's like, oh, honey, you've got, you, you've got the, the car. You've got like the car shape. We just need to put a paint job on you. You know, <laughs> so she was, she was, she was a character. But she and her boyfriend, who were prof both professional bodybuilders, they showed me the ropes. They trained me from May until September. And my first competition, my first bodybuilding competition was the Daytona Beach Classic. The thing that scared me the most was, and the thing that prevented me from ever doing a bodybuilding competition before was I was terrified of getting up in front of thousands of people half naked. I mean, because these bathing suits, they don't cover much. I'll just argue that much. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? I am 43. I followed the diet. I followed the workouts. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it my best shot. We'll see what happens. And I did. And it was an incredible experience. I got third in novice, third in masters, and then second in bodybuilding. So it, I came home with some hardware. So it was a good show. It was a good first show. When did you yeah. start? When did you, you said you were earlier, you, you had said that you were into modeling and all that and acting. Mm -hmm. uh, when did that, right. did that start in earnest? I started acting when I was, I was probably about, 16 ish, but I hadn't, I hadn't opened up. I hadn't like, I was so at that age, I, I, a lot of, I'm not saying a lot of people have the gift of being free with acting, but I was not one of those people at that point. I wanted to do it and I wanted to model, which was a different story, 
but the acting part, I couldn't let characters go. I couldn't let myself go. I was too afraid of looking stupid or making a funny facial expression. So my first audition was a Burger King commercial. And I remember I walked in there and my mom walked in, which made me nervous even more. And the audition was awful. He's like, okay, can you read this for me? And it kind of sounded like this. It was like, hi, welcome to Burger King. I mean, it was beyond awful. And I got one of the, don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I auditioned for a few other things and I just got frustrated. I mean, it is a difficult business to be in. If you don't have the, you know, the right look for the part or the right sound or, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's, it's always nice to have a backup. And at that age, you just, you just get frustrated and move on to other things because there's so many things going on when you're 16 anyway. Um, I did some, you know, I went out for modeling for a while. I was, I was six feet tall. Oh, well, no. Yeah. I was six feet tall at that age, about 19. And I weighed 145 pounds and they were telling me that I needed to lose 20 more pounds, which I didn't do so I didn't really continue on that path and shortly after at 19 I got married I ran off to Vegas I was that girl I <laughs> I met a marine and I ran off to Vegas and I got married um so that was kind of the end of that I did some theater uh when I was a kid I also did some theater when I was in Tennessee I was in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and the Homestead album and some other stuff at the Cumberland County Playhouse it was just kind of something fun to do, but I really couldn't focus on it because my daughter, you know, my daughter was still young and she actually got to do some of the plays with me, which was really cool. And, and she kind of continued on. She really enjoyed it as well. She enjoys acting. But while I was working at the gym down here, I've always had friends in the industry um, and I just wanted to get back into it. And I had been talking to Ian Stevens for a long time and he invited me on board of Cap Studios as his executive producer and account executive. Um, we're working on a series called Shattered. It's very much like the Twilight Zone. So it'll be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about that. And then I'm also involved in the Supersonic Pod Comics. Um, if you want to listen to any of them, it's at supersonicpodcomics.com. Um, I actually play a French secret agent. Her name is Agent Rotam. And uh, I'm a part of the Super Force. We've got Matt Kennedy as Box and Francisco Ruiz as Vicas, Jessica Walsh as DM, Jenda Chan as Draco, J.S. Earls and Ben Avery created it. And it is just a good time. And, you know, if you're if you're bored in your car or you just need something to listen to, it's it's like an audiobook and it it's fun. It we're it's like a new world of a new universe of new heroes and and he's got other comics that he puts out which are absolutely amazing called The Randoms and Sumo Girl and also The Mark. So it's it's really fun. Um on Saturday I am looking at going and doing an audition for a horror movie. So I'm pretty excited about that. It was kind of on my bucket list to be in a horror movie. So 
I'm looking would, forward to that. That's that would be on mine too. I think. <sighs> yeah. So does your sobriety? Do you draw on that in your acting? Me, your experiences with that. I certainly do. Um, you know, even though I've been able to forgive myself and and move on. Yes, I I use that as an outlet. I use those feelings that I had um, to surface maybe a dramatic monologue or or anger or something, you know, sadness. Um, but I also use the gym as my outlet. You know, I take it out on the weights instead of alcohol. So so it's either characters or, or weights. But but yeah, I, I do channel those feelings occasionally. What would you tell someone who is listening to this show and they maybe have a, have a problem with drinking or with drugs or with gambling or what have you? And they're thinking about just thinking about going to AA or to another meeting. What would you what kind of advice would you give them? I would just recommend reaching out. Just talk to someone. I mean, call me. I'll talk to you. I, I it, it is the there is no, it's like the, the biggest judgment free zone I have ever been in. Um, and just reach out and talk to someone. There's no stupid questions whatsoever. Um, you can Google local AA uh, chapters or meetings and it'll show you all of them in your area. And you can, sometimes you can click on their link and it will give you a phone number to call, um, like a local phone number. And they have they have call call centers, you know, for that. Just you know, if you're thinking that you might need help, or or you just want to change your life, or you know, do something different to better your life, don't be afraid. It's totally okay. I, I know it's easier said than done. Because I have a very difficult, I had a very difficult time reaching out for help because you don't, I didn't want to admit it. I, I figured I had it under control. But if, if you feel bad about buying alcohol, which I did in the end, I, I would make up excuses because of the people at the counter would see me every day. But if you feel bad about it, just talk to someone. It's, it's okay. I mean, we all have our stuff. And, you know, that's what we're, that's what we're, I believe that's what we're here for. We're here to share our experience, strength, and hope. And, and if we can impact somebody's life by our story, just think about what your story might do for somebody. In 1957, Laika became the first animal to orbit Earth. What kind of animal was Laika? What is the only team in the Big Four North American Sports Leagues which shares its name with one of the Avengers? And here's one more question for you. Are you the type of person who enjoys playing trivia games, learning new things, and having a bit of fun along the way? If you are, or if you just want to find out the answers to those other questions, then our podcast, Quiz and Hers, might be right up your alley. Each week, one of us writes new trivia questions for the other person, covering everything from science to history to pop culture to sports. And every question in a game relates to some theme, like Game of Thrones, internet memes, sandwiches, or animals in space. Some of the themes make more sense than others. So if you like trivia, learning, or real couples testing each other's knowledge and patience, check out our podcast, Quiz and Hers, part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Quiz and Hers, the trivia podcast where we test each other's knowledge and the strength of our relationship. In a world 
where digital content barrels towards us at relentless breakneck speeds, where posts and memes and tweets and snaps rain down a punishing assault of attention-grabbing data. Three heroic podcasters with a strong background in broadcast media are taking on the internet. Each week, we break down the trends, technology, and connections that are transforming our lives. We are Things I Found Online. Available wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Jessica Gerlach Petrovich. I'm 37 years old. I'm a native New Yorker living in Serbia. I grew up in a small town in the Catskill region of New York State. I come from a family of four kids. I was very social, loved to dance, to act, play piano. My close friends meant a lot to me, even at a young age. I began modeling at age 13 with just a few local print work, commercial type of jobs. I had a regular teenage life, including all the trials and tribulations teenagers have. By age 17, I had started traveling to New York City, which by train was about two hours away. By that time, the town I was from had become increasingly affected by drugs, mainly heroin at that time. Certain friends and acquaintances began destroying their lives by the time I was 18, and numerous had already overdosed and died. As an 18-year-old traveling to the city often, I decided I wanted to live there and chase all the opportunity I saw just waiting for people to grab. I was super ambitious. I had already delved into the world of the arts, acting and dance, all of that. After moving to Manhattan, I enrolled at Herbert Berghoff Studio with a combination of acting and dance classes. I had been working on my first indie film with a supporting role as a journalist college student with a director named Gerald Barclay, who became a dear friend and still is one of my best friends up until today. You'll see that come full circle later in my story. Throughout my time in Manhattan, I had many ups and downs as well as completely new and eye-opening experiences. From being around celebrities, renowned photographers, and being immersed in the party scene to becoming a promoter at certain hotspots, life got a little off track at times. I'd stray from some of my goals, whether by distraction or making ends meet, and as a result, I'd get pretty down on myself. Becoming resilient was a necessity for me to keep going, to get back on track with my goals. I worked so many different jobs because my rent was so expensive. Many times I felt I was being pulled in too many directions at once, and being so young, it was very confusing. It's difficult to stay focused when you have an adventurous free spirit and you're still very, very young and you're on your own. So I had various jobs, cocktail waitressing, working in salons as I had gotten my cosmetology certificate during high school, bartending, commercial and fine art modeling, acting. There were times I struggled hard to pay my rent or to even buy food. Even knowing my parents weren't all that far away, I felt a compelling need to do it on my own. Plus, I knew they'd make me move home if they knew how bad I was struggling, and that wasn't an option for me. I had always been stubborn like that. At one point, I moved in with my best friend, who was also from my hometown, living in the city, going to college. Those are some of my best memories from New York City. She and I always had each other's backs. She would never leave me at a party alone and vice versa. After a few years of New York City life, and honestly, getting burnt out from that entire lifestyle, certain circumstances presented themselves, which led me to Toronto. I decided to make a move up there. I always had a bit of a gypsy soul, a bit of a nomad in me, and identified as being very spiritual, or though not in a religious type of way. 
I was always exploring, adventurous, looking for new experiences, new energy. I always thought to myself, do what feels right in this moment. Don't stay stuck. I always had it in my mind that if something was telling me to go, it was meant to be or meant to lead me towards something that was meant for me. Looking for myself or trying to find myself in this huge world, if that makes sense. There was like a strong, intuitive push that kept me trying to find something I was looking for, which only now looking back, I could say was my purpose. I had turned 21 just a couple months before moving to Toronto. It was the early 2000s. And even though I was, I thought I was escaping a certain type of scene in New York, it was almost just as stepping into a smaller New York City. I felt even more directionless for the first year or more in Toronto, but I was having a ton of fun and I was 21. I began seeking out opportunities for my creative soul once again. I started meeting a lot of interesting people there as well. Had a couple of failed relationships. I mean, I was just young. Looking back, I see I struggled with self-worth issues, which led me down some self-destructive paths. I was somewhat hopeless at one point, but once again, I had to pick myself back up and just focus, get my mind right. Started learning how to really meditate had a first sort of spiritual awakening experience. Shortly thereafter, I began working on a web-based comedy show, which brought me back to life in many ways. It was so clear at that point to me that without a creative outlet, I wasn't the best version of myself. Not long after I began acting on that show, the producers asked me to start giving my ideas for my character, which I think does work well with comedic acting anyway when you get to give your own insight and ideas and so on. I then became an official writer on the show. Luckily, I always loved to write and had written tons over the years, whether it had been poetry since I was a kid, to creative writing with my friend Gerald, whom I mentioned earlier. He had always included me in on his projects as an assistant writer since I worked on his first feature film. I'd helped him piece together storyboards and helped him write scenes. I also started taking improv classes, which was another fun and creative outlet for me. Years passed, and then my whole life started to change. I got married in 2006, and shortly thereafter, I had my first son. So I was in full mommy mode for a while and felt like my life had more purpose than ever. Not too long later, I had a second son, two years later, exactly, to the month. I was a stay-at-home mom for a few years. I wanted to raise my kids myself and give them all the nurturing and love they needed to thrive and grow. But during that period, once again, I felt like I wasn't enough somehow. Again, I found myself struggling with self-worth. I felt like I needed to do more, something more important. Not that I didn't feel that my role as a mother wasn't important, but I felt like I needed to create a bigger impact on society. So I, I began taking courses on spirituality, studying the power of the mind, researching the corruption of this world. I had a true awakening at this point. There was a lot of sadness about the realities of the world. Um, there was a lot of happiness about the love and beauty in it. It was messy. <laughs> the whole thing was just really, really messy all over the place, but definite spiritual awakening, as I said, I, I found myself more in tune with energies in general, picking up on deeper vibes from others. Somehow that journey led me to decide to study journalism, where I could express myself, investigate things, and, and write about them. 
So I studied while my babies napped. I became certified as well in hypnosis due to my deep desire to help others who were struggling. I then moved on to neuro-linguistic programming and got my certification in that. Whatever moved me at that moment, I did it. Many people questioned how all of this was going to come together and suggested I was just wasting my money. I honestly didn't even know how it would all come together, but my thirst for knowledge just kept pushing me in another direction. Then one day we were at a relative's house and I saw a documentary on Serbian orphanages. I saw these babies and children strapped to beds like prisoners, although they were actually strapped so they wouldn't fall from the beds and get injured. Many of them were so underdeveloped, like 14-year-olds at the physical level of a nine-year-old. Understaffed orphanages are what they said led to these conditions. They were not, they were, there were not enough people to hold these kids, to keep them active, to hug them. Um, having two babies myself, seeing this floored me, thinking of my own children whose father is Serbian. It was hard to understand. All I could think of was that I need to go hug these babies. <laughs> um, it had a huge impact on me. In the meantime, I had been back to New York to work on various film projects, um, taking on different roles, actress, producer, continued to write with Gerald when he needed help. Eventually, life circumstances and ironically led us to move to Serbia at one point when the kids were three and five. Um, While visiting relatives in Serbia near the Bosnian border, I arranged with a family member to visit the closest orphanage in a town called Banja Kovljača. The kids were fortunately not strapped to the beds or sick as far as I could see. They were mostly running around, playing for the most part, um, and they were Roma children, so they call them gypsy kids here, but the proper terminology is Roma children. Um, as As I came to learn, I really didn't know much about it. So I went in and spoke, Well, my translator spoke, a family member spoke to the woman and explained how I wanted to volunteer and that I was staying in a place nearby. It turned out there was a ridiculous amount of red tape regarding spending time with the kids or actually volunteering. Um, But they said I could come visit them and hang out with the with the kids and the women that that ran the orphanage. So I did just that. I even brought my kids along. It was really crazy because I thought I'd be bringing the love to them. But as I pulled up in the car every time, they were all literally pulling me out of the car, hugging me. They were just so ecstatic to have have visitors. It was amazing, truly amazing, the love that they gave, even in their circumstances. So they were incredible. Life then brought us to another city two hours away where we opened a couple of businesses. We opened a, back, a bakery and a cafe. From that point on, it just felt like a lot of stress investing in businesses, moving from Novi Sad to Belgrade, the capital city, opening and closing business after business, all while slowly building a house over the course of a few years in a village two hours away where luckily we knew everyone. We could grow our own food and spend time in nature. We would go there on the weekends sometimes, but at one point I was so busy in Belgrade, I was literally working around the clock and I didn't have a chance to go as often as I probably needed for my for my well-being. After closing my restaurant, I began working in brand development and after a year became deputy director of that company. 
I love the creativity of it. And while I found it very fulfilling, we simply needed more income after the deficit we found ourselves in after investing in numerous restaurants and nightclubs. I was also working for a high-profile celebrity as her brand manager separately from the company I was deputy director of. And on top of that, I had also taken on a role as um, PR for a restaurant with a high-profile clientele. I literally would leave my house at 9 a.m., sometimes earlier, and wouldn't get home until midnight. But the stress continued, and along with the burnout from the overwhelming workload, I had experienced some pretty major trauma, which is for another podcast, uh, which I literally did not have the tools to handle at that time. In addition to the fact that I was living in another country and still trying to learn the language and feeling, let's say, less than equal in certain situations. Without getting too deeply into that, I was in a very dark place at one point. I think for a while, all the work had distracted me, so I didn't have to deal with my trauma head on, but that eventually caught up to me. I ended up stepping back from everything work-related except for the deputy director position, which I could mostly do from home, aside from one or two days a week when I had meetings. We ended up leaving the city, and we moved into the house we had built in the village, surrounded by nature, where I could dedicate myself to healing the traumas I had experienced. I spent a lot of time alone or just with my kids. I meditated constantly. I prayed to God to make me feel better. I did a lot of yoga. I visited ancient monasteries and prayed even more. I went hiking. I focused on getting through each individual day and finding little things to make me happy in each moment. But I had many ups and downs. The darkness tried to creep in on me many times, but I had to find ways to stay in the light. And I did. During my healing process, my dear friend Gerald needed help writing a book about Wu-Tang Clan. He had grown up in Staten Island and shot a bunch of their first music videos back in the 90s. It was one of the best distractions for me at that time and helped me so much in my healing process to have an exciting goal to pour my energy into. He didn't find out till much later, actually, what I was going through during that period because I didn't talk about it much. I just wanted to move forward from that dark phase of my life. I had conversations with myself every single day. I realized I was surrounding myself previously with unhealthy unhealthy situations um, and people who were not a vibrational match to me. So I secluded myself for the most part until I felt better, only allowing a few people close to me. But the more I worked on myself, the better and stronger I felt, and my life literally began to transform. I started to feel amazing. All the hard work that I had done to make myself feel myself again and to make myself feel alive again. It just, it felt good, body, mind, and soul. Then one day, Gerald called me up from Atlanta while I was here at home in Serbia. He explained how he was really busy, but had this great concept that he wanted to develop and asked me if I could write it. His words were, take it and run with it, girl. (laughs) It was a drama to be written on the opioid crisis in the U.S., He must have subconsciously remembered that I had known so many people affected by opioids that when I reminded him, he was like, oh man, that's right. I was like, yeah, he's like, this is perfect. So it was supposed to be a short film, but I came back with pages and pages of text. He was like, damn girl, we're going to make this into a feature. 
He loved all the real life drama that I had infused it with. Sadly, much of it being pulled from actual events. I was truly excited to be a part of something that meant so much to me. I was so inspired. I literally couldn't stop writing and the creativity was pouring out of me. I envisioned so many scenes playing out in my mind. Within a couple of months, I was planning a summer trip to the U.S. with my kids. And the original plan was to film this short film version of the feature, of what was to be a feature in Staten Island. So I explained to him that it meant a lot to me to film in my hometown where I had lost so many loved ones to that epidemic. Um, I really wanted to get the community involved and he backed me on all of that 100%. So it was a really interesting time for me. I had, (laughs) uh, this is the, the funniest part is I had previously committed to watching my sister's two babies for two weeks because she was working. And my parents, who usually watch them, were taking a trip to Florida. So I was thrilled about being able to spend time with them, having been away from my family for so many years. I was excited to spend quality time with my sister's babies, as she did with mine when we lived in Toronto. So it just so happened that the three weeks I had to organize the entire production, including casting actors, finding locations, and meeting with business owners to book locations and write more material fell right during that time. So I basically had two boys, nine and 11, my boys, and a two-year-old and a nine-month-old. So we'd wake up each day. I'd feed the four of them, get everyone dressed, and head out with four kids in the car to go to meetings, scout locations while in between taking them for ice cream or the parks, anything to make them happy and satisfied. So then after a long day of running around making sure four kids were taken care of and happy, I'd come home, put the little ones in the bath and just sit there with them and breathe for a minute. (laughs) Um, Then I'd remember the writing and organizational tasks that I needed to finish, like making notes for that day or what have you. So I would get the little ones out of the bath, dressed, make dinner while putting together my notes for the days from the day's castings or meetings. And once they were in bed, that was my time to write any dialogue or anything else I forgot in the day's madness. Many castings were done via my cell phone on Facebook video chat with about three other producers and an actor. I'll never forget my lead actress, Susanna, finishing a scene and saying, is that a baby I hear in the background? I said, oh, yeah, that's me. Sorry. She goes, oh, I thought your kids were bigger, Jess. I'm like, yeah, I have four for the next couple of weeks. So it was just kind of funny. We try, I try to find the humor in it, but it was, it was an interesting time. So while it was one of the best times of my life being with them all, it was most definitely one of the most challenging things to balance. I remember thinking, if I can pull this off, I can do anything. It was a very welcome challenge, though. By the end of each day, I was beyond wiped out. But truly, I felt purposeful, and the adrenaline of that kept me going. I don't ever remember being that determined in my entire life, actually. The town had come together for me in such a powerful way. The support was unreal. I had one of my good friends, Jill, who came through for me in every way, and Numerous other friends that helped me with who to talk to and where to go, Um, mostly my best friends from childhood and just the community in general. 
Um, family friends who own a funeral home in town were beyond supportive and accommodating, even though we showed up to film with tons more extras than we could have imagined. The middle school, ambulance, entire community was just so supportive. It showed me what can happen when people come together and stand for something, just how much emotion and power was in that. I'll be forever grateful for the town of Port Jervis and their support. The filming began during a weekend in July at a house we rented. It was so incredible to have all the actors we had personally casted and production crew all in the same house. My cousin Gina and her daughter played a mother and daughter in the film, um, real mother and daughter in real life in the film as well. And we filmed a scene where her daughter overdoses and dies. The entire set was in tears. Literally production crew had to step away because they were so emotional. Susanna, who plays the lead role of Gianna, falls to the floor at one point in the kitchen, anxious to get her fix. She shoots up, tying a belt around her arm, filthy from previously finding herself waking up in an alleyway and sighing with a sense of relief once the heroin infiltrates her bloodstream. It was just intense. It felt real. And that's what you'll see in this film. Raw, intense reality. There's no sugarcoating in this film. The energy on set between all of us actors, crew, extras, everyone was just pure positivity towards this cause. Everyone vibed so well with each other. And Gerald had commented, I couldn't have had better energy on the set if I hired A-list actors. You could just feel it wasn't meant to be. My dear friend, Michael Warden, a police officer who also does special effects makeup, did an exceptional job with his acting and Gianna's ankle injury that led to her first pill. Mayor Kelly Decker gave a compelling emotional speech in one scene at a teen's funeral. It was just a very moving project for all of us involved. The following September, I came back without the kids this time, and we held a screening and fundraiser in Port Jervis, and it was full capacity. The restaurants donated food, the businesses donated gifts, and once, a once again, the town came together and supported. It was unreal, life-changing. I had one lovely woman, Dawn, who did all the footwork for the donations. This project led me to begin public speaking on the opioid epidemic. Throughout the following year, I booked events at colleges and conferences, and many new doors opened. We held screenings all over for the film The 16. We received interest from networks to make The 16 into a series as well as a feature film. We are currently deciding the route we'll take, and we are so grateful to all the interest that we have from various networks. While all of that was going on, um, with all of that going on, I've currently teamed up with Brandon Dawson, who has been Dean of Amara College for many years and is now moving on to other ventures. Um, and we're writing a book about resilience and overcoming obstacles. And we're starting a very exciting event in October 2019 called Own Your Life in various locations in Florida, which I hope some of you will join us for. We delve into topics like how to take control back of your life, rewiring your brain towards positivity, overcoming obstacles, and just developing an overall sense of resilience. Our ambition is to help people get out of feeling stuck and so much more. 
in the last few months, I have also had the pleasure of co-creating a surf show for kids with an amazing team of professionals who I'm honored to work with. We are in the developmental stages of that right now, but we're looking for partnerships and I'm very passionate about it, um, being that it involves something positive towards ambitious children. They are truly amazing, these kids, and this project as well. I can't wait for the world to see it. My story is one of overcoming adversity and obstacles and our own mind's limitations. One of not letting your surroundings dictate what you can or can't achieve. I have repeatedly and unknowingly put myself in challenging environments, not realizing it at the time, pushing my boundaries and outside of my comfort zone. But it has strengthened me in many ways I cannot describe. My message to you is you can truly do whatever you believe in and especially always find a way to believe in yourself. My journey led me around the world only to lead me back home where my accumulated knowledge and experience can help people and hopefully make a difference. I feel as though I'm just getting started and through the failures and challenges, I'm still learning every single day, ever evolving, but ever loving my life and the people in it. The most ironic thing about my 20 year long search for my self and purpose is that I always wanted to go away from where I grew up and now I crave to be there.